Okay, I'm not gonna say much, um, just being direct. Y'all are here because I invited you to be here. And you showed up, and I appreciate that. Everybody on stage has represented and reflected what's in my being, in my everything. So I'm going to invite Danny to the stage because we got together for what was supposed to be a 20-minute conversation for two hours. So let's just say we got some Thank work you. to do, Mr. Glover. And so let's just get to it. So I have some notes. Um, so let's just, let's just start here. I know one of Danny's favorite writers is James Baldwin. And during our time together, Danny shared a lot of stories and a lot of quotes, but I want to start with this particular Baldwin quote from the fire next time. And it says, to accept one's past, one's history, is not the same thing as drowning in it. An invented past can never be used. It cracks and crumbles under the pressures of life like clay in a season of drought. And so with that as our grounding quote, I wanna just jump right into it. Danny was in Alabama for a museum, slavery to mass incarceration. Every state has a governor. The governor of Alabama happened to say, why is this museum necessary? And Danny, I want to know what was your response to that? Baldwin also said, James Baldwin, who I remember reading at 17 years old, The Fire Next Time. It also said, when we cannot tell ourselves the truth about our past, we become trapped in it. That's exactly why this museum is important. It's exactly why the continued elevation of memory is important to pass that down from one generation to the next generation to tell the truth, not only the, the truth about slavery, but the truth about First Nation people. There's a long gap within that. If you, if you look at the eight poorest counties in this country, eight of those, uh, the 10 poorest counties, eight of those are the counties that represent Native people, First Nation people. So we have a long way of talking about truth telling and what that means. I, I want to, first of all, I want to congratulate every single person who's here today for being here today. Ozzie Davis once said that I'm here today where I am because this is where I'm supposed to be. And this is where we're supposed to be today. This is the place where we realize our greatest sense of togetherness and community. What, did, what was Dr. King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Community of Chaos. And how do we build community? Those experiences that he wrote in those last books took him through the last part of his life, through the summer he spent, the summer of 1966 in Chicago, 
through the, the struggle that he had, the discussions that he had with members of the Student Nonviolent non Coordinating Committee and others about the use of black power during the James Merritt Second March. So the question becomes, what do we mean by community? And how do we define that community as we are in the 21st century? There's so many things that we, we can pull on in the sense, and that is our past, our shared past. I want to acknowledge the original members of the Black Panther Party who were here, who were here in the audience as well. I was one of those young students, member of the Black Student Union in 1968 and 69, who served breakfast in the Breakfast of Children's program in San Francisco at St. Anne's Church. So I know what the Black Panther Party and the meaning of the Black Panther Party and the 10 points of goal, goals of the Black Panther Party for building community and how to try to realize that community. First, it was self-defense. Secondly, it was free health care, education. All those things are important things, and all those are real, we must realize are part of a community. So when we ask ourselves, as, as we, many philosophers have talked about, what do we mean, how do we judge a society? How do we look at a country? How do we look at a state? How do we look at a city? And it's based upon what, what, how, are those our children, our collective children, all of who are all of our children, how are they developed? So Danny, That's how they said. I want you to be specific with the people. The Alabama governor asked, why was it necessary to build another one of those museums? And I think that question is important to answer for this group of folk because the America's Black Holocaust Museum is back. And that question has been asked and it will continue to be asked. And I think it would be good to hear your perspective on how to respond to that type of question. Well, I, I'm certainly, the governor of Alabama has his own agenda, first of all. Uh, he's, he, he was not the leader in any way in tearing down those, those artifacts of the Civil War, the worship he had led in no way he probably opposed that as well. He lived with it. He allowed the, the, the past to be a part of his present, and he did nothing to change that present at all. So that's the first thing about this. So I, I don't know how we want to reflect on what that means. What's so brilliant about Brian Stevenson and the work that he's done is when you read Just Mercy, his extraordinary book, as he worked with condemned men and women who were on death row. And some of them he saved and some of them he didn't save. He began to begin to shape an idea about the relationship between mass incarceration, the death row, lynching, slavery, and Jim Crow. So he made the line, the connection, and we often don't make the connection and the intersection between all those things. When we look at African-American history, we don't look at that connection. We understand, and some say, in some ways, the brutality of, of slavery, in some sense. But in one way, in, in, in defining that brutality and the aftermath of slavery 
and everything else. It's something that we've never connected with Jim Crow. We never corrected with, we never talk about the Reconstruction period from 1865 to, to 18, 1877. W.B. Du Bois, arguably the greatest, greatest intellectual of the first half of the 20th century, talks about that in his Black Reconstruction, which he did research on from, 19, from 1936 to 19, 1941 where he refutes all the lies told by white historians. That, and it depicted often in, 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 the, in the films, such as The Birth of a Nation, which, which uh, the, the, the president showed, it's the first time a president showed, Woodrow Wilson showed a film at the White House, was The Birth of a Nation. So, so understanding that becomes why we have the work of Michelle Alexander the work of black men, slavery by another name, the, the work uh, of Baptist, Edward Baptist, the half never been told. Read Edward Baptist, half never been told. Slavery in the making of American capitalism, and you know. As, 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 as a, a great friend of mine wasn't calls, he often calls, refers to American ca uh, capitalism, certainly he refers to is- Plantation capitalism. Plantation capitalism. So I, I think we have to understand that history and understand the relationship of that history and now. History doesn't lie isolated. It doesn't lie this moment is out, not connected to the next moment. All these moments connect each other. You take in my city where I was born and raised, San Francisco. During the 1934 strike, a great labor leader, Harry Bridges, who was the president and organizer of the ALW, ILWU, Local 10. And that was Longshoremen Workers. What he did was, 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 I think, progressive in a sense. He went around to all the black churches. This is before there was a Golden Gate Bridge and before there was a Bay Bridge. He went to all the black churches and he said, if you don't cross the picket lines, if you don't become scabs on our strike, I promise you, when we win, and the operative word was we will win, that black men will be on the docks when, when we win. And they won. And black men went on the docks. And the generation, two, three generations of African Americans who go up, come and worked on the docks, as a result of that statement, that was the real, those are real changes that happen. And it's, historic, history, it's, it's important historically to understand that as well. So when we talk about, when we speak about history in this sense, and understanding the patterns of history, the dynamics of history. W. B. Boyce said also, the question of the 20th century, and this is in 1900s at the first Pan-African Congress there, the question of the 20th century is gonna be the question of race. And he was not just talking about people of African descent, he was talking to people of Asiatic descent. He was talking to people who of, of, uh, of Middle Eastern descent. He said the question of the 20th century is gonna be the question of race. When Dr. King said the three, the three triplets of war Militarism and materialism are what we have to deal with and deal back with. We have ongoing wars here. What have wars have done traditionally? Wars have sapped and taken the resources that need to go for human development, community development, and use those resources for the armament industry and all those things. All these are understandable. And we have to begin to under look at this, this country 
And the intersection of all these things, poverty, poverty is a, extreme poverty is a political choice. It is not some sort of economic, economic science to that. It is a political choice. This country right here spends less than any other developed nation in the world on what I call public social spending. What does that mean? On education? What does that in terms of, in terms of education? What does that mean in terms of job, job production, or job creation and everything? It spends that money. When I worked for the Office of Community Development, the Model City Program in San Francisco for six and a half years in 1971, we knew how many jobs we were going to have that summer. We knew in the Baby Hunters Point in the Mission District, traditionally black community and the Hispanic community, what resources were available to create jobs in there. We had programs, we had some of the most dynamic community leaders. I'm talking about 48 years, 47 years ago. Eloise Westbrook, Espinola Jackson. These women are heroes, they are my heroes. Those are the ones who, who took this young kid out of college and began to teach him and learn from them and everything else. So hey, on the hey, same hey, sense, hey. That, has been, that has been a dynamic that's happened, happened around this country. What we see now, what we see in terms of poverty, poverty among children, we see also those things about the issues of healthcare and the access to healthcare. We see gentrifications happening in every single city. I've lived in the same neighborhood that I was, in the city that I was born in since I was 11 years old. I lived 12 blocks from where I grew up and it's changed. A neighborhood that was primarily, primarily African-American that you can find, you can find myself as accounting one of the few African-Americans living in that neighborhood. That's the reality. That's, that's the determinant. But those are political decisions. When I was working in city government, I saw what planning do. They knew even before it was the Moscone Center when he was uh, tragically murdered in 1978, they knew that they were gonna build a complex down there and remove all those poor people, all those people who broken people, all those people who had no access to the service. And they knew that, that they were gonna be the ones who were gonna be the victims of what happened. What do we do with the most vulnerable is the history that we have to make. And that's, that's the, the next, history that's we have the to talk about. That's the next question I got for you. Because Danny, when Danny get going, we might have to just get a little I'm, more I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in a sense. <laughs> this is all, this is all with respect, and, and like I said, I'm thankful that everyone is here is coming yes. to talk about the real issues that we have. I consider myself a community developer. I may be, maybe find my life on the screen and everything else, with everything else, but when I come to communities like this, wherever they are, whether they're in the world, and let me remind you, I'm the, I'm the goodwill ambassador for not only UNICEF, but I am the special goodwill ambassador for this decade of African descendants. Who talks about, who knows about this decade of African descendants? You know, so the issues, the issues in the Caribbean, the issues in, in the Caribbean with CARICOM are the issues of reparations. The Canada, right there, right up front. All, every single leader in, in the Caribbean countries in CARICOM is signed on to letters to the, the original colonizers, the British, the French, and everything else, demanding reparations. That's surreal, in a sense. So how do we contextualize that? When we talk about the, uh, the number of African descendants, the largest set a grouping of African descendants is where? Brazil. Over 100 million people are self-defined 
African descendants in Brazil. Where else? Here, Canada, there are more than 200 million people of African descent in this here, southern and northern hemisphere. And 90% of them live in poverty. Those are the realities. We have, again, in Costa Rica, just last month, the first woman, Essie Campbell, to be elected vice president of a country in this hemisphere. African descendant. We have, we have all these different dynamics that are happening around us. We have to pay attention and understand those, how those dynamics are, relation, are related to us as well. And what impact that has on only, not only our public policy here, but also the impact that it has on foreign policy for our country as well. Thank you. Y'all want to applause for that? I think one thing that's important for me, well, a lot of things are important to me and for me, but truth, direct, explicit truth, and you take that and you do something with it. So we talked a lot last night about anger and how anger is an okay thing as long as you use it productively. I also want us to take the moment and have a public conversation around psychic and historic memory about trauma and about pain how we heal individually and collectively? Well, certainly the, the America's Black Holocaust Museum is a center for that. And to talk about the trauma that we still live, the psychic trauma and the historic trauma. We made a reference last night to uh, um, a poem by Langston Hughes, the trumpet player. And the trumpet player, anybody know the trumpet player? And look, wait a minute, we pulled this poem up last night uh -huh. and I tried to read it myself. Danny took the paper and he said, let me show you how it's done. Let me say the trumpet player. This is Langston Hughes, 1944, the trumpet player. The Negro with the trumpet at his lips has dark moons of weariness beneath his eyes where the smothering memory of slave ships blazed to the crack of whips about thighs. The Negro with the trumpet at his lips has a head of vibrant hair, tamed down patent leather now until it gleamed like jet, with jet a crown. The music from the trumpet at his lips, his honey mixed with liquid fire, the rhythm from the trumpet at his lips, its ecstasy distilled from old desire, desire that is longing for the moon, where the moon's lights but a spotlight in his eyes, desire that is longing for the sea, where the sea's a bar glass, sucker's eyes. The nigger with the trumpet at his lips, whose jacket has a one-button roll, does not know upon what rift the music slips its hypodermic needle to his soul. But softly, as the tune comes from his throat, trouble mellows to a golden note. What is he talking about? Right there, he's talking about slavery. He's talking about releasing that anger, pain, trauma, all the trauma. The Kevin, trauma. you better get it together. I'm gonna start reducing that fee for this time. So, and understanding that, I, you know, I, we were talking about Raising in the Sun, one of the greatest plays written in the last half of the 20th century. Walter Lee's historic and pain. And we spoke about raising the trumpet. Just talking about art, how, how art reflects. And I said, I said to Melissa, I said, I said that Walter Lee's pain 
was not simply his pain. It's historic pain. It's his grandfather's pain. It's his great-grandfather's pain. It's his father's pain. So in that sense, in a sense, it is an amazing, the trauma and the pain. She understood that. She understood clearly what that pain is because she knew that these men and women, all these people have been broken. And in order to, in order, and that she was broken too. This is great play like. And in order to heal herself, in order to heal herself, she had to accept that and embrace that. We have to embrace broken people. And I'm saying bro broken people because African Americans are broken people. Poor white people are broken people. You understand that? The First Nation people are broken people. So we got to embrace that. Barbara, Bishop Barber has had this poor people's campaign. Dr. King understood that. What was he doing in 1968 on April 4th when he was assassinated? He was, he was there in support of broken men, uplifting broken men who said, what did they say? I am a man. That's what he was doing. That's what he was doing in 1968. What else was he doing? He was talking to poor sharecroppers in Alabama, Mississippi, coming across the talking to poor whites in Appalachia, talking to poor and say, who are also broken people, say, we're going to organize a poor people's campaign. We're going to Washington and demand the right for people, demand the right to live, demand the, the right to, to, to justice, and demand the right to our own humanity. He understood that. Where are we going in that last 50 years? This has been an interesting month, interesting year, because we have the, the assassination of, of, of Robert F. Kennedy, we have the assassination of Martin Luther King, we've had the poor people's mayor, all these things have happened in this particular year. And it's important in that 50 years ago, where we go, where do we go from here? Community of chaos. Where does this fit? Where does this museum right here, the America's black, Holocaust Museum fit within the context of where we had to go, not simply as Milwaukee, as you said, not simply as a nation, our state, but the country and the world itself. Where do we go for this? And that healing has to be in it. And we have to recognize and embrace it as ours. When we talk about, when we talk about the ideas of, 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 of healing, of sitting there, it's, it's, yeah, we, we find different ways. And there are migrated books, there are plethora of books about how we can go through our own process of self-healing. And we can talk about healing. But the, this has also been an interesting, an interesting century as well, the 20th century. It's the, it's the history, it's the century of the self. The, se the self this. There's a history of, in the 21st century, particularly the last part of the 20th century when we have to understand the role that technology is playing on alienating us from each other, divorcing ourselves from that. We have to understand that. We have to realize that too. I, I, I applaud all the techniques and all the technology that we have in which we can communicate, social media, communicating. I come, I was first generation who was not born in the South. Not born in the South. My mother, part of my, part of my my moral underpinning was my mother said, I'm eternally grateful for my mother and father. That's Mac and Reese May Huntley. Because I didn't pick cotton in September. I went to school in September. 
My mother was born in 1920. She graduated from Payne College in Augusta, Georgia, 1942. Right there. So understand, understanding that. So there was a kind of much going Not only was that she was in it, her grandmother, Mary Brown, who's our family matriarch, was alive when she graduated. Mary Brown was born in 1854. She was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. Understanding that, understanding, free by, so imagine a healer, Mary Brown. So her mother and father, Mac, and her, Mac who born in 1892, my grandfather, all, all of them lived to be 99. 1892, my grandmother, 1895, lived to be 99. She saw the color paper, color purple, she said, I'm gonna get a switch after that boy. He know he was raised better than to act like that. <laughs> And mind you, I tell me, tell you, every time I came there, and if I didn't show up for a long time, she didn't see me for a long time, I had to come with a switch. And you know, you know, we all know what that is. There's a whole bunch of people that don't know what the switch looks like. And she had to hit me with, to assert her authority, you know. You know, you may think you're something else, but this is who you really are. <laughs> and so on that sense, on that sense, they had to come there. But so all that rich legacy, my grandfather witnessed several lynchings in Louisville and I was wondering if I could get if I can look at when I went to the memorial the memorial for uh, uh, for peace and justice where they have about somewhere over 400 4,400 4, almost 4,500 known lynchings and they're still doing it by county by county you go county by county find out where the lynchings are and I'm sure the lynchings that took place here yeah, we're, are there out there as well, and you wanted to say, what does that mean? And then you have this story about how often people how were lynched, where not only they were lynched, the person, but the mother was lynched, or the grandmother was lynched at the chair and child, or the child was lynched. Those, those are the things. So the idea, the idea of creating this level of fear. You know, the idea of, of, of also the paddock, paddock patrols. You know, let's talk about the paddock patrols in terms of that. Let's talk about what you call black men, black men who's from Alabama, wrote a book and said, look here, I, I don't accept the narrative that black people are this way inherently. I got to figure out what happened. So he researches what happened after Reconstruction. And then to me, in black Reconstruction, Du Bois talks about what really happening, that it was black legislators who introduced public education, not only simply for black ex-slaves, but for also for poor whites as well. That's the reality of it. So we got to kind of look at the lies in themselves, uncover the lies, and see how those lies, understand how those lives have affected us. The gerrymandering of districts, the, the, the redlining of district, the brilliant study done on Baltimore, in Baltimore, about the redlining that happened in that city. All these different defined ways in which we were temporary. Yeah, I just did a movie with a, a couple of young, young, young men from San Francisco. One of them was white and 27, and one was 24, African American. And they, one thing I knew about that, they were born and raised in San Francisco like I was, and they loved San Francisco. And the title of that movie was The Last Black Man in San Francisco. In a sense, and in some sense, there's a reality there too. How, how, how does this happen? How do we get this, how do we become, how we say, removed from the political center of what's happening 
in the, in the city, in the state? How do we move out to places so far away that you are a, a diff, so far away like Antioch, two and a half hours from the city in rush hour traffic, an hour and a half, whatever. How do you, we move to that? How do we let that happen? How does my city, which I love that city, I love that city. How does my city become so, sec so, so removed of diversity? There's no diversity in that city and everything else, even though we just celebrated the election of a young woman who was a black mayor, London Breed is the young woman who was a black mayor, and we celebrate that. But there's no, you could take the number of African Americans who live in San Francisco, put them in Pac Bell Park, which is the new Giants, the San Francisco Giants Stadium, and then we won't fill the place up. That's what is happening to this. But it's happening in Cincinnati. It's happening in Harlem. It's happening in Chicago. It's probably happening here to various degrees as well. Gentrification and everything. How do we say it's a political choice? It's a political choice. There's no economic scientist. I'm trained as an economist. There's no economic science to that. It's a political choice. I don't know how we turn it around, however we stop this engine and everything else, but it's important that we do something as citizens to do so, that. So Danny, can we talk about the sacrifices and the dangers of real change, about being uncomfortable? The sacrifices and the dangers of real change, being uncomfortable and the inconvenience of what it takes to, to change and shift. I, I think you need to bring Brian Stevenson here. You know, I know his, his book. I mean, his, he's booked like I don't know what. Brian Stevenson, who started the Equal Justice Initiative and built, was a part of many, I'm sure, hundreds of thousands of people who built the, the Legacy Museum and the Memorial Park for Peace and Justice. Because he said something. He said something. I was sitting with my friend who I invited, Gus Newport. Now, if you know Gus Newport, Gus Newport was the flag, first black mayor of Berkeley, California, and probably had one of the most progressive, radical, radical administrations in the history of Berkeley, but maybe even the history of this country in California. And Gus Blueboard was, 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 is a black nationalist. He undefined that. His last, he spent, he doesn't tell it, but the last few weeks of, of his life, he spent with Malcolm X. In fact, he took Betty Shabazz to the hospital when she delivered the two twin. That's Gus Newport. But Gus is also a part of, was part of an initiative in Boston called the Dudley Street Initiative. Anybody know about the Dudley Street Initiative? The Dudley Street Initiative, he ran that in 19, from 19, 1990. In fact, I, I was up there in 1992, and, and, and a, a celebration as always, a celebration as well. So the healing that goes on here, the healing that happens in this place, this healing has to be a part of what happens for the entire city, as you said, the entire state, as you said, and the entire country, as you said as well. That's what the healing has to be. And it's, a, it's all our healing. It's those who, the healing of those who were the victims and those who were the who descendants of the victims and those who were the descendants of the, of the perpetrators as well. So all of those things are important for us to understand that in the sense. If we're able to build this, it's not going to be about how many ways in which we can use technology to remove us and alienate us from the realities that we face. It's going to be how we touch each other, how we move, and how we build is that extraordinary human being, Martin Luther King said, Martin Luther King said, the beloved community. How do we build a beloved community?
We are. We are definitely over time. So I'm gonna say a few little things before I have Danny end with one story. And before, when we wrap up the story, I want you to tell us about Rosalie, but just give me one about second. About what? Rosalie. Not yet, not yet. Give me one okay. second. Because when the story about Rosalie is done, um, the band is gonna start, the food is gonna get refreshed and you can eat and then stay as long as you want. Well, you got about an hour. Um, but I just want to thank you all again for being here. This does represent the 12th year anniversary of Moore's Development Group. And I just want to touch on, for me, there is a book in everybody's chair. And if you didn't get it, we have extra copies. But the first paragraph of the letter that I write to the reader, it talks about trauma. And it talks about my need to heal from my own trauma. And that trauma is, some of it is direct, some of it is vicarious, but a lot of it is historical and generational. So, you know, in that sperm and in that egg of every child comes the history of generations. And just because it wasn't our direct experience, it doesn't mean that our emotions and our everything that's within us isn't impacted. And so if there's a such thing as healing forward, the work that I have done has been a direct outpouring of the way that I was raised and the possibilities that I know that existed, not just for myself, but everybody in this room and everybody that we're connected to. So thank you for being here. As soon as this story is done, the band will begin and the reception will start. So I just want to take that moment to just appreciate and acknowledge you all for being here. I um We, 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 mentioned, we, we mentioned Ida B. Wells um, earlier in 1896, the year of Plessy versus Ferguson. That's a decision by the Supreme Court to, to stamp separate equal as, as universal law, as we would say. She led an anti-lynching campaign. Well, 50 years later, I don't know, some of you in this know that, that Paul Robeson and Albert Einstein were the co-chairs of an anti-lynching campaign. And they, 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 they were aggressive. It was a national anti-lynching campaign. That, to make, that's what we had to congratulate, that's what we had to congratulate uh, Sister uh, uh, Gwen here. And also we have to congratulate Bobby Rush as well for introducing this legislation, legislation just last week, I believe. And so the story goes that there was immense, immense, uh, how you say, re reaction to that from particularly the governor of South Carolina. The governor of South Carolina at that time, certainly in 19, by 1948, as Truman was running for his second term. The governor of South Carolina was, was Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond. Now, you remember when Trent, Trent Locke said a few years ago, as John Strom Thurmond approached his 100th birthday, he said this would have been a different country had Strom Thurmond become president. In the same, imagine that. This is, this is Trump before Trump. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and so Strom Thurmond put up such a fuss, and, and certainly as its governor of South Carolina against a federal law, because what did it do? 
it undercuts state rights. You know what I'm saying? The federal law said this is the law of the land. And so Robeson and a group, including W.B. Du Bois and other leaders in the black community, met with, with Harry Truman, the president. And, and meanwhile, Roosevelt was like about 6'3". I mean, uh, Robeson was about 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, and Mary McCall Bethune described him as the tallest tree in our forest. And so Robeson was there, and, and Truman procrastinating because he's getting all this pressure from the Dixiecrats. There were Dixiecrats, the Democrats first, because the Republicans are the ones that freed the slaves, not the, not the Democratic Party. And so what, what happened was he kept vacillating. So Robeson says, with all due respect, Mr. President, if you can't find a way to protect us, we'll find a way to protect ourselves. He said that. They dismissed the whole, they just, he's just, Roosevelt, I mean, Truman dismissed, dismissed the, the meeting itself. And after that, from that moment on, there was a vicious attack against Paul Robeson. In fact, a lot of people in this audience, young people need to know who Paul Robeson is. Paul Robeson, the son of an escaped slave. The son of a escaped slave, the first two-time All-American football player, the first black All-American football player, a lawyer, saying in t more than 12 languages, spoke 12 languages. That's who Paul Robeson was, in the sense. And fought on behalf, behalf of labor, fought on behalf of justice around the world. That's who Paul Robeson, and we need to understand that. We have to resurrect, we have to resurrect our, radical, our radicalism, Emma, you know, Emma Goldman, uh, 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 Eugene Debs, a socialist who ran, to, from, from, ran for president from in prison, in prison in 1918. 1918, on sedition because he opposed the war, the First World War. We have to understand this radicalism that happened as I mentioned, Harry Bridges, we had to reclaim that. It was Robeson and W.D. Boyce who formed the Office on African Affairs in 1939, anticipating the upcoming, after the war, the upcoming struggle for decolonization. It was they were at the Manchester Conference with all the future leaders of Africa and the Caribbean in Manchester, England in 1944 at the Pan-African Congress. And understand that. We have to understand the patterns of history and what has happened since then. The resistance that people have put up. Dr. King understood that. Dr. King understood that he was not the civil rights movement. He was part of a much larger movement than that. A movement that went beyond the civil rights movement. A movement to save humanity. That's what we have to talk about. This is what we have to talk about. What is our engine? What do we do in the course of saving humanity? And that's why I still want you to talk about your cousin, Rosa Lee who just passed away oh. three months ago. Rosa Lee is going to be our final story. Just me, brother. <laughs> I, I, I've been coming down. I've been going down to my... I was, I was born in 1946 in San Francisco, California. From the time I was six months old to the time I was three and a half years old, even I was born in San Francisco, 
lived in the housing projects in San Francisco. My mother left me on two occasions in Georgia on the farm with her mother and her father during that period of time. So I almost lived, I lived almost two years in my early years. So all my sensibilities about smell, taste, all those things, heat, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm used to this heat, heat and everything else. All of those were, were initiated down there as a small child and everything. So I go down there all the time. I was just down there. My cousin Fanny, my mother's first cousin Fanny had a 95th birthday on January 19th. I was down there for her birthday on the 19th. She has a cousin, Rosalie, who made 100 September last year. Rosalie died, and I didn't get a chance to go to the funeral because I out of the country two months ago. Just over 100. Rosalie had a mental challenge. During 100 years, she was never able to take care of herself independently. Somebody had to take care of her. Imagine this community of love who saw Rosalie not as something to cast off, but she saw them as part, part, part of that community. Imagine that, and I thought about that because I saw Rose, Rosalie right after her 100th birthday. At that thing. And imagine the kind of community that celebrates and embraces all of us, no matter what or who we are, no matter what, what our, our disposition is, no matter what our health is, embraces all of us. She only survives within that small community. And certainly, that community for me as a child was, when I saw it, they were mythical to me. My grandparents were mythical to me, the way they talked, and the way they did everything, the way they moved, the urgency in which they lived, the way in which they dealt with their own healing, their own historic trauma and everything and how they moved throughout. It took that kind of love, that kind of nurturing for Rosalie to be a part of that community as a full citizen of that community despite Galilee Church honored her and other women as full citizens of that community for 100 years. Think about that when we're talking about what we, the future we want to build as well. Thank you. Thank you.